This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Cool, let's just do it one more time. Why? Because we love making movies! Hey, everybody. I'm Aaron Gelabolo. Welcome to my podcast, Because We Love Making Movies. Today on the program, we're talking to two visual effects artists who seem to prefer their work to be invisible, which, if you ask me, is the way it should be. Their credits are many, but to name a few, Apollo 13, Cinderella Man, A Beautiful Mind, The Road, Boardwalk Empire, and The Wolf of Wall Street, Lost City of Z, Hereditary, Midsommar, Uncut Gems, Harriet, Trial of the Chicago 7, and most recently, Boogie. I wanted to welcome Richard Friedlander and Glenn Allen. Hello. 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 Thank you. Good to welcome. be here. Welcome, guys. And I wanted to start with what do you guys do in your own words, if you could tell us? Glenn, do you want to start? Sure. <laughs> well, basically, um, yeah, Rich and I come from the editing world. So we thought once editing became digital, you know, we thought we would be good visual effects producers. By that meaning, we weren't necessarily visual effects artists, but we were filmmakers first. Um, we've been on the, in the editorial side, looking at a lot of visual effects from vendors. And we thought we, we had enough contacts with good artists and we had contacts with the studio that we could put that together um, and create Brainstorm Digital and um, we've been visual effects producers since then, uh, 16 years ago. And, um, you know, occasionally we supervise on set as well, but that's pretty much what, what we do aside from running the company. And I guess just speak a little bit more to the craft of, of exactly what it is you guys do, just for the, for the layman who doesn't quite understand. Well, what, one of the things that we do is um, we really like, the filmmaking process, telling stories, collaborating with, with filmmakers. So we really, um, I always look at it that we assist or that we're just another filmmaking tool for the director, that we're there to help tell his story, whether it's telling the story in one image or a series of images. Um, we just, we help facilitate. Um, it's, it's a great technology. And uh, when you're making a film, there are a lot of hurdles to overcome. So sometimes uh, visual effects is a way to overcome the hurdle. Um, it's been something that's been there since the beginning of, of filmmaking. Originally, it was done optically. Uh, I, I actually, years ago, worked on a film where a, uh, an artist actually painted the matte painting on a glass plate uh, in, in, in front of the camera, which even at the time to me seemed so crude. I was like, wow, there's, there's gotta be a better way. Um, and eventually there was. So the, the technology kind of took us, uh, it felt like 
when we migrated, we were still very part, uh, very much part of the, the filmmaking process. And, um, you know, had the opportunity to work with some really good storytellers. And, and I think that's so fascinating because it reminds me of this great story that uh, Dennis Murin, who's sort of one of the, the greats of special mm-hmm. effects and visual effects said, you know, when he started out doing optical effects and some of the very first, uh, you know, visual effects, he said they had people who were sort of trained on computers, right. But who had never been filmmakers and they weren't very good at, at, tr- at creating special effects and visual effects within the framework of filmmaking. And so then he went and got all the old people who were trained in optical effects and photochemical effects and train them on computers and they became far better artists because of their sort of bedrock in in traditional filmmaking and so i think it's so um, fascinating and i think it speaks to the quality of your work that you both started out as editors so so let's go back to the beginning you know how did you guys how did you guys sort of get to where you are and then how did you meet i mean how did you start out in the business and then how did you meet well uh I started out as a um, post-production PA. Um, I had tried uh, getting the PA work on feature films, and it was it was it was like a impossible nut to uh, crack. Uh, once I graduated from NYU Film, and okay. um, I finally decided, I said, you know, maybe editorial is the place to be because it lasts for a longer time. I was doing PA jobs on a lot of commercials for you know a few days a week, spending more time finding work than actually doing the work. Um, so um, I decided, and at that time, it, which is, I, I feel bad for, for kids today because at that time I was able to go around uh, and knock on doors. I knew the few buildings like the Brill Building, mm. uh, a few other places where, where f- films were editing. Their doors were open. You could walk right in and say, hello, here's my resume. Do you need any help? You know, and, and, and most of the people in that community were very, very friendly if they weren't under a particular stressful moment, they were willing to sit down and talk and say, uh, we don't need anyone, but a friend of mine is working on a Sidney Lumet film or a such and such film. Um, so eventually I, I did uh, get a little friendly with some uh, assistant editors who were working on, uh, who were just starting a, a film uh, that Paul Newman was, was directing. And um, suddenly one day I, I get a phone call and they go, can you, are you ready to start tomorrow? After I had, you know, for weeks and weeks been, um, pursuing them and speaking to the post-production uh, supervisor who, who I still know to this day. Um, I was very fortunate to get the job. They interviewed me several times. Uh, they were very protective of the, of the director, Paul Newman. And, and, you know, and eventually I got the job. I was running around getting lunches. I was, you know, supporting, I was learning. Uh, I was learning things that I had, didn't learn in film school. And, uh, event, and I got a chance to work with great legendary editor, Dee Dee Allen. Yeah, wow. Who, who, for people who don't realize, is, is uh, had a huge uh, uh, sort of her influence in sort of American cinema is huge. I mean, from everybody from Thelma Schumacher to to uh, uh, I'm trying. To, I mean, she basically Didi Allen cut Bonnie and Clyde. Correct? Is that right? right? That's that's yeah. correct. She she um, she cut uh, a couple of films for Arthur Penn. Right. Right. Who I, I eventually, do, thanks to Didi Allen, got a job uh, working on an Arthur Penn film. Uh, one of it's his called films. Target. Right. Right, right. Not one of his, uh, you know, memorable films, but it it was still an interesting project. It was really like a a career uh, resurrection for uh, Gene Hackman, who's a very good uh, friend of Arthur Penn. Um, And 
So uh, Dee Dee was, was really an inspiration. She was unbelievable. She was probably one of the most dynamic people I ever met. And she got me more excited about filmmaking and editing than I ever had. And uh, she was just a very gracious, very, after I finished working with her on the job uh, and had the excitement of working actually very closely with, with Paul Newman, I was with him everywhere he went. We became, you know, working friends. Um, mm -hmm. We didn't really, we didn't have contact after I finished the job, but Dee Dee and I re remained in contact and uh, she actually worked very hard to, to get me other jobs and recommend me to other film productions. And he's the godmother, right? Yeah. The godmother of editing. She, she really is. She, she's, uh, you know, the, the stories she would tell, the, the, just to watch her editing, to, to see how she put things together was, was unbelievable. She would um, sort of kind of procrastinate most of the morning of the day and suddenly she'd get a burst of energy and like everyone, it was like a tornado around her with film flying all over the place. Um, so, you know, she, she really sort of uh, turned me on and uh, has inspired me to, the, to this day. And now just, just to be specific about that, I mean, was it that she saw that you wanted to be an editor or was it m more that she was, she saw that you were excited about filmmaking and, and how might she sort of encourage you? And did she, did she give you movies to watch? Did she give you scenes, little scenes to cut or, or what, what, how, how did she sort of inspire you and, and help guide you? She would, she would, you know, talk through the process. She, she saw that I was very enthusiastic, wanted to be an editor. Uh, but at the same time, if I had to run out to get, you know, uh, somebody a bag of potato chips. I, I had no problem with that. I would, you know, do it with a smile. Um, so she'd be cutting and, and talk me through the sequence that she was cutting uh, and, and explain what she was doing and why she did this and what she did that and uh, show alternate ways to do it. It was tough in those days because you were actually working with film. Mm. So she used to actually make what were called dupes, uh, black and white copies of the film so she can do all different versions. And, um, mm. It was tough to watch because we'd switch between color and black and white, but that was the way she was able to make different versions to show Paul Newman. Um, and then eventually, uh, her and and uh, and you know, with also Paul Newman's help, they got me into the editors guild. So uh, I finally was starting to get, you know, I got promoted to being an apprentice, uh, started to get union salary, and uh, you know, and, and I was on my way. So so you know, that was really. Uh, the process was really at the time getting into the uh, mm -hmm. editor's union or guild. And also I just want to paint a picture and Glenn, I imagine, uh, are you also from New York? I am. I am. I have a similar path actually. Well, cause I, I just wanted to give sort of the audience a context. It's like you guys, it, 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 seems to me that you came up in New York in a time when it really had a vibrant film community. And, you know, you mentioned the Brill Building, which is like where Martin Scorsese would, you know, would work and, and all, people like Sidney Lumet and Robert Altman and, and all these amazing American filmmakers had a, a base of operations and obviously Ron Howard, who you guys came to work with. But I just want to give everyone a context of this is a New York that sort of doesn't exist anymore to a, to a certain degree. Yeah, exactly. I, that's kind of where I, I really started in post-production was the Brill Building. Wow. And like Rich, I was at a school. I went to school for writing. I led to screenwriting and then the film department. But I was doing the same thing. I would work. Um, and I interned in various departments through college, like in talent relations at MTV and then props and then camera. But I was getting these jobs for like two weeks. I was killing myself. And then I'd be out of work for a month. Like Rich was saying, I, I would find these odd jobs and it was just, it, I just felt like it was not the way I, I thought it would be. <laughs> and through um, 
a relative of mine, Jonathan Demi, introduced me to Bill Nisselson, who ran Sound One at the time. Wow. And got me a job as an, a, a messenger. They're delivering rolls of film to different cutting rooms and mm-hmm. doing odd jobs. And, um, and that led to, you know, a, a non-union job looking for an apprentice, you know, no experience, but I jumped into it. And, and hold on, let's just back up for a second, not to embarrass you. How are you related to Jonathan Demi? How? I'm, that's my mother's cousin. Wow. So interesting. I mean, for, for those listeners who don't know, Jonathan Demi is really, may he rest in peace, one of the great, great directors. I mean, everything from Something Wild to, uh, you know, Sounds of the Lambs. <laughs> yeah, he was great. And I, I remember going to him like, wow, you know, it's great I'm working, but I kind of, I want to work all the time. What are you thinking? And then he thought, well, you know, post-production, those jobs last a while. You want to work. It's not, I mean, I get the same pay. <laughs> but let, let me introduce you to Bill. And, and he was wow. doing something. I think he was doing, I don't even remember, but he used to work in the Bill building. And wow. Bill was nice enough, I think, to do a favor and get me in. And then, yeah, it led to a, a little apprentice job and then a union job after that on a Bronx Tale. And, um, so, and a Bronx Tale directed by Robert De Niro. And what was that like? It was great. I was, for a young kid, that's, you know, it was no money. It was a flat rate, seven days a week for 11 months, but I didn't care. It was great. I loved and it. Were you, were you an editorial on, on a Bronx tale? Yeah. Or? yeah, it was editorial. I was, I was the apprentice editor and working for David Ray was the editor. And, and would, I was in awe of him. He was great. And would also, would De Niro come and sit in sessions? Would he, I mean, sure. how, yeah, how did De Niro directed it? So he yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was just curious in terms of how the how the editorial process worked with some, you know, worked with him. Is that his first movie that he directed? I want to say yes. I I think it was. Um, that's that's incredible. And then I, I want to get to Ron Howard because you guys, I I think, and maybe I'm just making this up because I was looking at your credits and trying to sort of make sense of it. But did you guys meet on the paper? When that's, when, that's when, correct. Okay. Okay. So, so talk about, you know, cause then you went on to make many films with, with Ron Howard and, you know, who, who's a director that I love and I certainly grew up on, uh, you know, what, what do you guys think, you know, talk about, I guess, starting to work for him, but then also what really, uh, worked it so well in that relationship and, and how you guys worked. Well, uh, we, Glenn and I were very fortunate. Uh, we didn't know each other at the time. I, I think maybe we passed each other in the hallways. I actually had the opportunity on uh, one of uh, Jonathan Demme's films to, to be a, uh, a sound editor, a junior sound editor on Married to the Mob. But um, I guess we both simultaneously got a call from someone, uh, his name is Guy Barisi, who was working and was trying to fill out the team. So I think prior to that, um, the people who were on Ron Howard's editorial team, except for the, the, the main editors, the two supervising editors, um, had moved to LA. So uh, we came in and interviewed and, and got the job. And that's really where Glenn and I first met and also first got to uh, work with Ron. Um, and, and it continued. I mean, it was, it was actually, and I'm sure Glenn, you'll concur, it's one of the, the, you know, the greatest, uh, we became very good friends with, with everyone, the two editors, uh, Dan Hanley, Mike Hill, who worked as a team and did every one of, uh, I think they met Ron when he was doing, you know, happy days or, or, and they were, ed, they were assistant editors on Laverne and Shirley. Wow. Uh, and I think that's, 
I, I think that's yeah, accurate. I think that's how. I think Ron wound up directing a couple episodes of Laverne and Shirley when he was starting to direct, and I think that's how they met. And then when Ron, you know, did his first feature, he just kind of took those guys with him. For Roger Corman. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Ron, uh, re, you know, relocated, uh, I guess, you know, fairly early on to the East Coast, wanted to raise his, his family and, and had his, his base of operations in, in Connecticut. And these two editors, Dan, Dan was from L.A. and, and Mike's family was in uh, Omaha and they, they just, you know, relocated to New York for the period of the film and we came up uh, and and worked with them and once you get on the schedule with a particular team and uh, you know we, we just became very close with them to this day we still you know speak to all of them um, and you know Ron was a very very uh, low-key person mm-hmm. I mean we, we were we were working um, in like a little dumpy uh, editorial space in Connecticut that was above a dentist's office. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> we were, the, uh, and actually when we, we started doing uh, Apollo 13, there was like a, a million feet of film and the floors in the place were like starting to sag and, <laughs> and the dentist down below would be like, what the hell's going on there? He'd hear rockets blasting off and explosions. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the great so, thing about Ron too was that, he, he included us in the story meetings and stuff. And it was when I, you know, I really felt close to the filmmaking process mm-hmm. as low, low level as I was. It, it was much different than being a PA when you're just getting lunch, like we're just saying, are you lugging lights around? Mm-hmm. Just that, being an editorial, I felt much closer to seeing the, the story take shape. And Ron was very inclusive with, with our crew. With that. And, and it's fascinating too, because I think, you know, Ron Howard, I don't think gets enough credit for the amount of sort of advanced, I don't know, groundbreaking movies that he was a part of. I mean, particularly Willow, which I don't think a lot of people realize the morphing effects in Willow are sort of the beginnings of the James Cameron, you know, Abyss and T2 ILM type stuff. And, and then obviously Apollo 13, which I really want to talk about. I mean, those special effects are, they hold up so well and they, it doesn't, it doesn't look like visual effects, you know? And I guess talk about, was, was that kind of a movie where you guys said, Oh my God, this is where this is going. You know, what was the, what was the lightning bolt moment for you guys with visual effects? I, I think it, it probably was the key uh, movie to sort of enlighten us and inspire us with, with the visual effects and things like that. One of the uh, interesting things uh, was that um, Ron was very lucky to uh, sort of get connected and bring on the, the visual effects supervisor Rob Legato, which was our oh, introduction yeah. to him, and he's he's legendary. We subsequently, you know, we became you know friendly with him. We ended up uh, he brought us on to uh, Wolf of Wall Street. We worked with him on that. Wow. Um, so uh, the interesting thing is Rob Rob was very much comes from a, a, a an analog uh, mm. cinematography background. So he did a lot of you know combination of plates of models miniatures and then some actual you know digital effects so it was it was everything digital domain he was based at at the time it was in its uh, infancy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they did an amazing job and uh that's really what you know i i think uh inspired both of us uh yeah and, and then of course when film went digital i guess it was i guess it was digital on ransom but i think it was a beautiful mind was maybe the first time when as assistant editors, you can take the load, you can export a shot 
from the Avid, bring it into After Effects, and you could do some temp visual effects on it. Wow. So it was something Rob, Ron saw that we, you know, we could do this in a crude level, but he could, you know, he would say, well, you know, can you make the, the letters rise off the newspaper? And we would do a crude version of it, or, you know, he, he would do things like that, and we had, we had the technology to do it at the time. So, so that was another step in the. Yeah, one, one of the uh, things that I think Ron started to see was like, well, this, this is going to be a filmmaking tool uh, visual effects, just like, you know, editorial sound, sound editing, uh, music. So he said, you know, it would be great if, if we just had like an ongoing, um, visual effects department. Uh, and I think one of the things too is, is Ron was always very conscious, at least in my, my perception of, of, you know, making sure he didn't go out of control with the budget. He was very cost conscious. And mm-hmm. so one of the things, especially like Glenn said, with the beautiful mind was, there was a lot of experimentation and every time you experiment uh, with, with a company that it costs money and he wanted to basically, you know, fool around, experiment, test some mm-hmm. things. And he, and, and we started doing that for him. And uh, he, you know, ultimately by, by, you know, then the, the, the real visual effects uh, people uh, took over, but um, it really helped lay the groundwork for what they worked off of and enabled uh, Ron to uh, sort of solidify, you know, his vision. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that, and he got our mindset. He said, God, it would be great if you guys could, you know, just keep doing this work. And we were like, uh, yeah, maybe, but you know, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, we can't keep doing both. We can't have one leg in each, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, uh, it, it's, it's interesting because it, it, it's sort of two things. You're, I mean, it's like, it's kind of reminds me of, of, you know, it's like Ron Howard sort of sees the future a little bit and it, cause it sounds like what you guys were doing was crude previs, you know, yes. uh, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to a certain pre-visualization of things, which now is far more expensive and looks like full on animation, et cetera, et cetera. And then right. the other thing is that it sounds like Ron really, I don't know, somehow instilled in you guys this sensibility to have the visual effects be very elegant and low key and, and not, you know, uh, taking center stage, uh, you know, and, and so is that something you think is it, that you took away from your experience with him when you were doing visual effects or, or maybe not? Yeah, I think so. Cause Ron is so the, the most important thing to Ron is always the story. The, and that's, you know, that, that's what I learned from him too. It's not about the, flashy effects like if it if it tells the story that's the main that's the main thing mm-hmm. you know and we were always whether it was you know optically or digitally we were working with the optical houses or or uh and just trying to make things blend to to really kind of flow and and you know and work really well so so that that yeah that definitely was the the root of our, our approach um and you know ultimately when we did make the transition um into uh full-time visual effects uh one of the things that we both felt we had going for us is that we we came out of editorial and it Mm -hmm. was about the story it wasn't about the technology i Mm -hmm. i think one of the things that sort of started to catch on is like we understood the post-production editorial process we knew what they were going through and we were we were not you know technical we weren't techno nerds you know we knew computers and software but that wasn't our approach. Mm-hmm, so like, mm-hmm. like Glenn said, we, you know, it was, it was about the story 
and understanding the filmmaking process. And I think that, that gave us a real insight, uh, you know, working with editors mm -hmm. uh, and directors. And we, we had the opportunity during our days in editorial to work with some really, you know, well-known directors. So we knew how to communicate with them, how to, how to negotiate, work mm -hmm. around them, uh, and navigate. The, the hierarchy and and, mm -hmm. uh, and and also got to see you know how some top editors got to work uh, with these directors and communicate so that, that really gave us you know the opportunity to um, you know be communicators as filmmakers yeah as as and and well, I think what's just to just to let everybody know you know you guys have worked with everybody from Brian De Palma on Mission to Mars as well as Jonathan Demi and Rachel getting married and also oh, Nora Nora Ephron I find it very yes. interesting that you guys had mm -hmm. sort of a very sort of beginning relationship with Nora Ephron both in the, uh Richard I believe you worked on My Blue Heaven yeah. right yeah. which which Nora Ephron wrote and then mm -hmm. you guys also worked on, did you work on Sleepless in Seattle or? or yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Sleepless in Seattle and then uh, uh, Ju Julia and Julia. Yes, yes. Sure. Um, and what was it like to work with Nora? Because she, she just, I think she's just one of the all-time great writer-directors. I mean, really. She, she was really uh, a fascinating, interesting person. Uh, when I was working on My Blue Heaven, the director was Herbert Ross, who was, you know, a huge, legendary, old Hollywood kind of guy. Um, and actually, at the time when we were doing My Blue Heaven, right next door to us was was uh, Scorsese doing one of his classic films, uh, the uh, one of his gangster films. Um, was it was it was it Casino? Because because I know no, no before okay, okay. before Casino. Okay, uh, okay, okay. Uh, good um, Goodfellas. Goodfellas. Oh wow! Uh, I can't believe I forgot that. Um, wow. So um, when we were, when they were uh, we were in the Brill Building, and uh, Nora would come in. And, and visit us and she would want to learn about the editorial process and, and ask a lot of questions. So I was working with an editor at the time, uh, Steve Rotter, who, you know, had already, I think he was an Academy Award winner for uh, The Right Stuff. Oh, holy uh, shit. With wow. Phil, and had worked on a few films with Phil Kaufman. Wow. Um, so I, I remember one day after she left turning to Steve and saying, you know, mark my word, she's, she's going to be directing a film. Uh, next, uh, she wants to be a director. Sure enough, she she did a small uh, independent film. Um, I think it was shot in Canada. She asked us to work on it, but we weren't available. Uh, but then, um, uh, Sleeps in Seattle happened, and I went to work on that with uh, an editor who I knew. And 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 Nora was very much a, a family kind of person. If she liked you, and she felt you could uh, you know engage in conversation during lunch liked food. She was a big foodie. She would become very, and we, we became very close and very trusted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and she was also very inclusive in the, in the filmmaking process. So I got to work very closely with her and the editor on, on, on redoing the structure of Sleepless in Seattle. It didn't end up uh, with the structure that she had in the script. Huh. Um, and she wasn't originally supposed to um, direct that. The, the director, she was just the writer and the director was Nick Castle, I think was his name. Um, and then, you know, something happened creatively with the studio and, and him and, and they asked her to come in and take over. One of the things she loved to say is she was, she got paid for the script, but she was getting scale to direct the, the movie. <laughs> it was, it was really a tight budget, but, um, it was great. And she really, we, she really gained a lot of trust and, and I, I went on, uh, I was working on a, on a film and 
and actually got a call from her assistant said, are you available? She's working on this other film. It's, it's sort of midway through the post process. Can you come in? She's, you know, would love to have you on the film. So I, I went in, it was already, you know, a long way into post-production and, um, it was, it was a film that wasn't too successful uh, on many different levels. Uh, Mixed Nuts, Steve Martin, uh, and okay. Sandler film. Uh, but anyway, we, you know, we, we just, you know, had, had a good relationship. Um, she, you know, I was into her food thing. So uh, she would never eat, but she'd love to watch everyone else eat. And uh, <laughs> go out to lunch and dinner and, you know, with her husband. And, you know, she always liked having a party. It wasn't ever just me alone, but it was always like a few of us would go, go out to dinner. She loved holding court, like the old, you know, writers around, you know, the, the, the table, you know, whether it was the days of uh, Hemingway or whatever. But she, she really liked holding court and... Um, it almost reminds you of Mank, you know, of, of the, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen Mank, the David Fincher yes, film, yeah. right? But like all those writers on the old, uh, the MGM lot. I mean, I mm-hmm. think it's it's really beautiful what you bring up because one of the reasons I started this podcast, you know, the title, Because We Love Making Movies, comes from this, uh, the tradition on Quentin Tarantino's set where he'll say, let's do one more take. And then you'll say, why? And the whole audience, the whole crew, cast and crew will say, because we love making movies. And, 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 I, and it's because, you know, it's it, anybody who gets to make movies, it, you, you automatically become a family with the people that you work with, you know? And I think particularly these kind of directors, whether it be Nora Ephron or Ron Howard or Martin Scorsese, it's like, they really thrive on having the same people work with them. And, and it's not just because they're good. They're obviously good, but it's also because this is, it, it's so hard and we work so much, you know, you spend so much time together that it becomes, it becomes your life. There's no, it's not a job anymore, you know, and I, and you're really sort of putting a, a, a finer point on that. And, and I wanted to also kind of segue a little bit to, you know, because after you guys uh, found Brainstorm, uh, I want to get to Boardwalk Empire because it, it seems to be quite a milestone. But, but Glenn, I wanted to talk to you first about, did, I think I read somewhere that you did work on Casino. Yeah, I did. I, I was um, actually my relationship with Marty goes way back when I was a freshman in college. That summer, I interned in his office. Wow! He was making um, the Last Temptation of Christ, and oh. uh, so I was like doing odd jobs. And it was the beginning of him um, his his uh, archive library days. He would get prints in, and I was responsible for cleaning the prints and bagging them and storing them in the Brill Building. At wow. First. That's like the beginning of the film foundation, basically. That's right. Yeah, Cause he exactly. put the preservation. Wow. Exactly. And um, so I had always been in touch with, well, I just, I didn't really know him very well personally, but I knew Thelma hmm. and wound up working on, yeah, I was an assistant on casino for the last four months or so. I mean, I love Casino so much because I do think people, it gets this bad rap of, oh, it's just Goodfellas all over again when when it's just ridiculous. It's not. And it's such a wonderfully epic story in a different way. And what was it like to work with Thelma Schumacher, who's just one of the all-time great living editors? I mean, you know, I'd Thelma love to. Thelma was great. Yeah. Thelma was just the sweetest woman. And um, I, in fact, I saw her on a plane, like it was five years later. She walked past me on a plane and she remembered me. Which, you know, she, when she's, when her and Marty are cutting, they're, they're locked in a room. They're right. just locked away. Right. So I didn't have much access to her. I see. I you see. Know, years later, she passes me and says, oh, Glenn, hello, how are you? And I almost didn't recognize her. It was it so long. <laughs> she, yeah, she was great to work with. And um, 
those were long hours. You know, he likes to work. It's gonna. He works seven days a week, and we had really tight schedules on that one. And was it? Did you find that they were? I don't know. Obviously, you said you didn't have much access to to he and she editing, but do you find that they tried a lot of different things? Was it, or or was it much more of kind of a you know he's oh, assembling yeah. it? I mean, how how was it? What, he seems very free form in terms very of very much so, very yeah. much so. They would even at the last minute you'd get a, you know, in those days we're conforming the film print mm-hmm. back then to screen, and we'd get changes that would be like one frame. So, you know, one frame here, one frame, he was constantly shaping it. Wow. Yeah, wow. It was great. Great to watch. So then how do you guys get Boardwalk Empire? I'm so curious to hear what, how that, how that uh, uh, happened. Well, we, we had uh, brainstorm uh, digital was going uh, already by that point. We had, you know, a small reputation. There weren't many other uh, companies in New York at the time. Um, we were actually in, in Brooklyn. Um, and, um, one day, I just get a call, and um, the, the person on the other end of the line says, uh, "Hi, this is uh, Gene Kelly," and I'm like, "Gene Kelly? Gene Kelly's dead? Is this a joke?" <laughs> it, it ends up, you know, just the same. He was uh, Gene Kelly was producing, um, potentially producing this, uh, you know, script. They just had a pilot script called uh, Atlantic City. Hmm. At the time, we didn't even know Scorsese was involved, and I don't think he officially was. But he came to us and he said, I was recommended to you guys by a, a line producer who knows you from, you know, s- some project. And um, can I send you the script and can you give me your thoughts? Well, what, what happened was is they were in discussions with HBO, but HBO was like, this is, this is going to be too expensive. How are we going to do this? You got to shoot on a boardwalk, New Jersey. We can't get the New York tax credit. So, you know, we, we kind of sat down with, with Gene and said, um, you don't have to go to New Jersey. You don't have to go to the boardwalk. You know, they, they were able in Asbury Park to get full use, but how are they going to transport? How are they going to house people? And we said, just do it. You know, you could do it on an interior stage or an exterior stage if you don't mind the natural occurrences that will happen and lighting changes that will add a certain reality to it. Mm. Build a section of a boardwalk and uh, we can extend it. And they were like, really? But but what about the water? We, we can't afford, it's not going to have the budget for CG water. And we said, well, we can, we can put in plates, you know, you'll have to control your camera work, but we can film, you know, water plates, put it in. And we said, you know what, let us, let us show you. Let, let's, we'll do some tests and show you what we think we can do. So we, we took some still images and, mm. uh, of the boardwalk, black and white, and added, you know, uh, extended it, put camera moves, did it all, you know, within the computer with, with a team of artists. And showed it to them, and, and, you know, they were very excited. Gene was very excited. He showed it to HBO, and they were like, okay, you know, this, you know, budget it out. See how, how you know, this will work if you have to build an exterior, you know, on a lot, uh-huh. uh, you know, a boardwalk. And they budgeted it out, and they, they said, okay. And at that point, um, Scorsese was, you know, involved in the pilot. It became Boardwalk Empire. And, you know, we were involved, you know, very much from the ground up. You know, wow. and, and being involved with, you know, their decisions, you know, with the production designer and art directors on, on you know, the size of the boardwalk, where to do it, scattered locations, and ended up being on a, a, a vacant lot uh, in uh, Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Hmm. And, uh, and, and, you know, and, and, that, and the story goes on from there. You know, one of the interesting things is we said, you know, you have to build, you know, a big, you know, green screen or, or blue screen. And... Um, one of one of the uh, things that we ended up 
uh, an idea. I, I can't say I had the idea, but I think it was, you know, just in our meetings internally with our team, we said, what if they took shipping containers and stacked them like Lego and just painted them? And that would be because one of the big problems with putting up a giant screen outdoors is the weather conditions. It becomes a giant sale. So we said, what about this? So um, the production looked into it and they said, wow, you know, we can get used shipping containers for like $200 each. So that, that was the decision there. They, they brought in a giant crane. They brought all these used shipping containers. We pre-visited it. We showed mm -hmm. them how high to go, different mm -hmm. camera angles, how much coverage we would need, how far to put it away from the boardwalk. So, so just, just to, just to, to, for the, the layman, uh, you know, when you're looking one way, for instance, at those great shots of Nookie or people walking on the boardwalk and you see mm -hmm. the facade. Okay. Some of that facade is built is a building, right. Mm -hmm. And then extended with, with digital effects to a certain degree, right. but on a vacant lot. And then the other way, when you're looking out at the water, that is basically shipping containers with mm -hmm. your plate, with your plates of the ocean put on that. Right. Exactly. Wow. Uh, and even, even wow. the beach. We, we had to yeah. put about, I don't know, I think it was like 20 feet of sand uh, down there. And uh, they, they painted it blue. Um, when the first, uh, one, one of the concerns we had is, you know, they said at night, we don't want to be into paying for uh, digital effects. It's, it's just going to become too expensive. So they said, we want to, we'll be able to sort of, um, maybe we should put up a curtain, a way to cover the blue screen so it's just black and it'll just fall off into blackness, the, the mm. ocean at night. We said, okay, you know, great. Well, the first night shoot they had, um, all the lighting was coming from behind the uh, physical structures and, and completely lit up the black curtains. So you saw out there black curtains. So <laughs> the curtains opened up and you're like, okay, you're into the blue screen for night or day or whatever you do. Um, so that was kind of a rude awakening for everyone, but um, yeah, it, it it just it, it worked out really well. It was very challenging, mm -hmm. and and it 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 really began to snowball in terms of the amount of work, uh, the volume of the work, the complexity of the work. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But you know, they they were really happy with it. You know, uh, Marty took probably uh, cut the pilot over a period of a year. Wow! And we actually got episode two to start working on before <laughs> before the uh, the pilot uh, mm -hmm. so uh, but based on that HBO was like you know go yeah we're, yeah. we're in, in, you know engaging a, a full season uh, and and the ball started rolling so at that point they, they brought in you know more people to on the production side to help us and they um, even brought in uh, Rob Legato came in a little bit just to, to consult. Mm -hmm. uh, suggestions mm -hmm. and uh, you know and and it, it just became a really tight-knit uh, team we worked very closely we were you know on the shoot all the time helping select locations mm -hmm. helping uh, yeah, brought up something out. interesting about being involved from the ground up you know, the name of our company brainstorm it mm -hmm. kind of fits our process because a lot of the films we work on the visual effects are is not the main event you know, like mm -hmm. you were saying, it's a tool, it's a component of mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. movies. So they don't have unlimited VFX budgets. So a lot of times we're tasked with, let's figure this out. How can we do this? How can we get the director's vision mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on the screen within our budgetary constraints? Well, and I think what you're saying too about the ground up, which is just something that always drives me crazy as a, as a filmmaker is, you know, oh, it's like you were saying, 
when Ron Howard would have the editors in a story meeting, oh, gee, what a novel idea. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, having not just editors should be reading the script and in the story meeting, but also the effects people. And it's not because you have to start spending money, but it's because everyone needs to be on the same page, you know, so that, so that it's a unified vision, not just for the director, but the production, you know what I mean? It's all about storytelling is communication, which means we all have to talk to each other in order to be, to be doing our, our best job. And it's like, you know, with a Martin Scorsese, he wants, you know, everybody on the call sheet because everybody's making right. the, the movie or, or the show. And, and I just think that that really speaks to your guys' approach to me is when you bake in visual effects into the story early on, you're going to get a better result and, and, and you're going to, people are going to be able, you guys are able to do your job you know, in a way that right. normally it's like, oh, here's the finished movie. Just do whatever with it. Well, I mean, how, how are you? Yeah. Yeah, we, we get that sometimes. We get a lot of films. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> usually on the lower budget side because they don't want to spend to have a VFX super on set. We mm -hmm. get the material and we always wind up saying, well, gosh, if we were only on set, we could have guided them to do this or that. And, and it would have been half the cost. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. You, you know, they end yeah. up spending the money anyway. It's like they're trying, right. what is it? Pennywise and pound foolish. That whole, you know, exactly. one, of the, one of those sayings exactly. I don't understand. But uh, I, I also think what's really cool about Boardwalk, just to kind of go back to the craft of it, is that, you know, the visual effect, it's got this very painterly quality. It's sort of both, uh, uh, it's not trying to be the past. It's almost like a memory of the past or a, it, it, like when I, whenever I watch the show, it feels like it's this strange mirage. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a little bit of a, I don't know. It has a very mythic quality to it. I mean, it is very realistic to a certain degree, but I, I just love how it sort of leans into, I don't know, the, the vision, the quality of your visual effects in terms of, it feels like, uh, you know, the, 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 the mythic version of the past, you know? Yeah. And that was by design, I think. Oh, really? Really? And, and do you think in the script or by, by Marty, how, or by you guys. And eventually, um, was it uh, Terry Winter and? Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, I think that was just part of the, the overall. Yeah. I, I think, you know, uh, uh, Scorsese, you know, set the tone in terms of, you know, uh, doing the pilot. But, you know, it was very much, you know, in the, in the scripting and, and, you know, mm -hmm. sort of uh, Terry uh, Winter's, um, you know, vision. He definitely, you know, had a strong sense, and and I think Scorsese saw that. I think he, mm -hmm. you know, immediately latched in and said, "This guy's got, you know, real interesting vision. I haven't seen this before." And what's what's fascinating there is that Terrence Winter, who created that show, and obviously comes from Sopranos and is a really wonderful right. writer, then goes on to write and do Wolf of Wall Street with Marty, which you guys did. Now, talk about going from you know what is a pilot with with Martin Scorsese, which is one thing, to a feature film which is Wolf of Wall Street, which is one of my, I just think it's a fantastic movie. You know, once again, it's kind of a testament to uh, a, a time and a, and a place and an era. And, and just talk about working on that film with him. Well, we, we were, I think we were into already uh, starting to work on season three of Boardwalk and it was becoming um, very fatiguing. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was massive. Also at that point, there was, there was a big turnover of, of the uh, production crew. Things, things start to change and the dynamics start to change mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. us. So we sort of started to tire of it a little bit. It started to repeat itself. So we were like, and then uh, through a friend of ours who was working as a, um, uh, a visual effects producer on the show, um, 
he said, Marty's going to be doing this. So we, we ultimately decided, you know, we can't do both. We can't handle as a, as a small company, uh, Boardwalk Empire. And we'd like to, Wolf of Wall Street is, you know, just looks like an amazing project. Uh, Terry was involved. Um, Rob Legato was involved. So that, that's, that's how we got involved uh, mm-hmm. with that. Mm-hmm. And we ended up working on that for, for a long time. I mean, it was over a period of, of at least a year, uh, including, including the shooting. Um, Rob Legato supervised it, but of course invited us down to, uh, there were several companies working on it, but he invited us down to set to, to be there, uh, you know, for, for the scenes or sequences that we would be involved with and, and oversee. Um, but as, as the show went on in post, our, our role grew, you know, mm-hmm. there was a lot more things that they, they needed help with or, or, you know, decided to do. Uh, and we were there for them. So it worked out and- great. And talk about, I guess, guys, that, you know, what's interesting to me for, for the listener is Wolf of Wall Street's not the kind, it's not a Marvel movie. So it, it's not sort of pure animation where you have actors sort of sitting in a fake world, but, it, you know, it's it's a very realistic drama. And 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 what role, do, how are you using visual effects in a film like that? And maybe give us an example, because it's not the kind of movie you expect to have, to have visual effects, but it does, obviously. Yeah, that, that was one of the, I think, the, the big... Um, uh, shockers for, for, for audiences. Um, uh, I think one of the things was, you know, Scorsese, didn't, it took place all over the world. And Scorsese didn't really uh, want to have to be traveling. I, I think the budget was big enough as it was at the cost and, and logistics of doing that. So it was all shot in New York and, and Brooklyn. And, and I think, you know, Rob Legato and him have a, a very close relationship and advised him, you know, we could just send a small second unit over to get plates of all these various, uh, you know, uh, locations. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's what was done, you know, so, uh, we ended up, you know, recreating, you know, Hyde Park or, and, you know, all the, you know, in, in London and all those, uh, uh Vienna. Gen- yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. Geneva, so um, really- uh, uh, Portofino, you know, Oh yeah. With the yacht, all that. So all the international locations are, are, are essentially visual effects and set extensions. Right. Exactly. And that also, you know, saves some money as well. Oh yeah, Yeah. for sure. Yeah. The Portofino was actually shot on a a soundstage, uh, green screen. And it was actually a stage they used to build the boat, uh, for that scene. So right next to it. So we had a, you know, (laughs) they just sort of squeezed in, you know, uh, the actors walking out, you know, on, on the, on the pier. Um, but, um, you know, when, when we finished the film, we went and, you know, normally, traditionally, when we, when we finish a job, we do what's called a BNA uh, demo or before and after. So we, we said, you know, to help promote ourselves, you know, we have so much work that we can share. Let's let's do a before and afters. And, you know, we have a, we, you know, since they have a great team that's very creative and they really, you know, went crazy. I, I first started on Boardwalk. Uh, people had never done reveals like that before. Um, to us, it just seemed to be the natural you know, reveal of, you know, transitioning from what it, the original material looked like and what and how we built the various layers of the visual effect. Well, when we did that with um, with Wolf of Wall Street, it, it somehow went viral. We had picked some really good music. It was a real interesting and it went crazy. And in fact, I remember running into Rob Bugato and he said, my God, I've never seen anything like this. Your video is like, it's got it's gone viral you know on the internet he said i it's, it's amazing and we were like well we we didn't intend it we just put it out there you know to, as a business promotion and uh, it became a phenomenon because people couldn't believe that this movie even had any 
visual effects, how uh, it's all, you know, I see. locations were fabricated. I see, I see. Meaning when you say reveal, sort of like, this is what it is in the movie and this is what it really is. Right. Yeah. Got it, exactly. got it, got it, got it. Okay, I, I, I have to watch. I have to watch that. The, I, I love. There's a, there's a funny story. I went to a Directors Guild, uh, screening, of uh, uh, Wolf of Wall Street with Scorsese doing a Q and A afterwards, and he told this. It was in Los Angeles. He told this hilarious story when they were trying to figure out an insert for a uh, seatbelt sign, and I guess Adam Sumner. I think the first AD had taken a picture of one while he was on a flight and, <clears throat> and they brought it up at a meeting and they said, okay, so we're going to recreate this and visual and visual effects. And this is the reference. <laughs> and, and Scorsese was like, what are, you, what are you talking about? It's here. It's in the phone. Use what's in the phone. Wait, guys, guys, we're not. We're, <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good uh, imitation of him. It sounds just like him. That's great. Yeah. No, well, that's, that's what he do, is. You try to shoot actual elements <laughs> as opposed to all CG elements. You know, right. if we can, if there's right. a real sky to shoot, we'll shoot the sky. Or if there's a texture of a building, we'll shoot, sometimes using stills, we'll shoot the real thing and that's, use that exactly. in, in the composite. Well, it's really, I mean, it's just an amazing film. And, and, and so I just, because I, obviously I don't want to take up, you know, all of your morning, but I, I just want to point out that sort of after we get, you know, beyond Wolf of Wall Street, to my mind, you guys go on a pretty amazing run of working with really, really specific and unique directors, you know, uh, and I'm just going to name kind of some, I'm going to, for the listeners, then we can kind of go back and talk about the specifically, you know, some of the films. You guys work with James Gray on Lost City of Z, which is just a beautiful movie. Uh, Hostels, which is a Western directed by Scott Cooper. Uh, Hereditary, which I am obsessed with. Uh, <laughs> you know, Boy Erased, Loose, uh, Midsommar, again with Ari Aster, Uncut Gems, Harriet, which is an incredible film, uh, Trial, uh, Trial of Chicago 7 with Aaron Sorkin, and a new film, Boogie, which I think everybody needs to see, and it's a, it's a brilliant movie, and you're actually working, you're in post, I think, on one of my very favorite filmmakers, uh, Ana Lily Amapur, Mona Lisa and the Blood Moon, uh, and, and it's really it's really kind of, I guess, uh, and also, excuse me, The Lighthouse, and you guys worked on The Lighthouse with Robert Eggers. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it just seems to me like you guys are really working with some of the, the most exciting new directors out there. And, and just, I guess, just talk about, you know, um, I don't know, talk about, I guess, why it is you love working, you know, uh, on some of these, with some of these more unique directors and, and maybe just go through some of the films and, and memories you might have from working on them. Well, you know, it's, it's inspiring, you know, it's inspiring yeah. to work you know, coming from a filmmaking background, mm. it's inspiring to work with great storytellers, mm-hmm. you know, working with Ari Aster. When we first saw the footage from Hereditary, we didn't know what it was. We thought it was like some low budget thing. You know, we had no idea what it was. And then yeah. while we were working on it, it became this phenomenon. It was out in Sundance and it did incredibly well. It exploded mm. and Ari exploded. And that was great to see. Um, you know, someone now already kind of, you know, grew up, you know, uh, earning his bones. And, and uh, it was great to see him flourish like that. And and, and, and again, you know, I, I, and talk about, I guess, talk about Lost City of Z. Let's go, because, you know, that's a film, I think, that also sort of takes place. It's sort of a, almost a classic, you know, uh, uh, ex- exploration adventure of somebody sort of going into the, into the wild 
uh, you know, almost a time of Joseph Conrad, Heart of Darkness. And, and what role were you guys able to play in terms of in visual effects, in terms of, of helping make that movie feasible? Because I can't imagine it was a big budget production. Uh, exactly. Um, we had worked with, with uh, James Gray uh, on a previous film he did, The Immigrant. Oh, right, right. And, Beautiful film, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, you know, it takes place in the early 1920s, late teens. So, uh, you know, uh, of course, nothing existed. So he really, you know, liked our work and fell in love with our work on, on that, the matte paintings and things like that. And we mm-hmm. had a relationship. Uh, we, we seem to, you know, develop a relationship with uh, producers who are doing, you know, story-driven films, mm-hmm. which are usually mm-hmm. the smaller films. Um, they're not going to go to a, a place uh, that, you know, Iron, Iron Man would go to or, you know, where you have armies of thousands of artists um, you know, we just don't get those kind of films, nor could we, we do that kind of, and it doesn't interest us. We're, you know, these are all story-driven films, you know, by filmmakers who sort of their, their style harkens back to the, the directors, you know, the auteurs of, of the seventies, you know, into mm-hmm. the eighties. And, um, so we already had an established relationship with James and his producer, uh, Anthony Katagas. So, um, we were involved very early in the scripting stages that he'd be like, okay, how are we going to do this? Can we do this? Is this feasible? Is this even possible? You know, the piranha attack and the, the ship uh, going across the Atlantic and this and that. And, you know, mm-hmm. we would, you know, really extensively have, have discussions, meetings, budgetary uh, considerations. And, uh, you know, and, and it went from there. And, and of course, it kept evolving because his, James's vision evolved. There are certain realities that come into play when you're actually at the location and you know we were we were on location glenn was in um uh belfast was it or yeah, yeah we're in belfast do some of the shooting there and then glenn and i uh also went down to uh columbia where they they shot ah, the, okay. the jungle which was especially challenging probably uh, the only other really extremely challenging location i think i'd ever been was on a film uh in the eighties. And uh, that was, you know, it was for months in the Sahara desert, but, uh, the, the Colombian jungle was like, I, and I believe that film is Ishtar. <laughs> Ishtar, right. right. <laughs> Imagine being in, in the middle of nowhere in the, in the, uh, southernmost part of the Sahara desert, which was barely <laughs> occupied. And, you know, you're with Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman and Elaine May, you know, that, that was, sounds amazing actually, yeah, but <laughs> it, was, it was a bit of a trip. That's a whole other story. But, uh, you know, uh, Glenn and I, split, they were two months in the jungle. We, we split, you know, uh, that because uh, just to, to keep things going back in, in New York on, on other jobs. Um, but I, I, I just remember the minute arriving and stepping off the plane um, and, and getting to uh, northern Colombia, uh, the coast, uh, in that particular jungle. They found a river that kind of looked like the Amazon and mm-hmm, didn't, mm-hmm. you didn't have to worry about uh, um, alligators or piranha. that river so that's why they shot there but it really was in the middle of nowhere and at that moment i said oh my god you know how am i going to survive this this is like i I can barely breathe it's so oppressive the heat the humidity you cut it and and it really from that moment on it just became for me at least i think for everybody a game of survival yeah you know um it it was you know you're trudging through the jungle and there are guys with machetes cutting away to make the path. You have, you know, howler monkeys overhead that are are upset that you're there, and they're they're urinating and defecating. They have like poisonous spiders, all and army ants. I mean, it was it was like we were living 
you know, through the, the, the heart of darkness. Uh, I just remember one day we're sitting there and I, and I felt back, they had like, you know, there's hundreds of people there, you know, local people who were just lugging this heavy camera equipment. Um, they didn't go digital. They were afraid of the humidity. It was shot on film. Huh. Interesting. That presented challenges. But uh, I just remember James turning, uh, to me one day, um, and he's standing there and he had these um, metal shin guards you know, to protect against snake bites on him. And it was like the funniest <laughs> looking thing I've ever seen. And he said, Rich, you know, today I feel like I'm a pile of crap in that bucket over there. I, I goes, how are we going to make it, make it through this? And it's just like, you know, I don't know, you know, survived flash flood. There was a huge storm, lightning striking all over, and everyone just ran and scrambled. There weren't enough boats to get out of there. I remember having, you know, suddenly what was a path through the jungle filled up with water up to my, you know, neck, and I'm running with all my, you know, equipment, still camera, everything, just holding it above the water and, and my head actually going underwater wow. as we tried, you know, to, to escape and get out of there and, and get to an area where they had some boats to, to take us back to the, the base camp. So, wow. Um, wow. So that, that was my experience there. It was, you know, quite an ordeal. And I, I hope we never have to go through that again, but it's, it's nice to be able to tell, make some good stories and, and it was an amazing experience. So great. You know, he's again one of these filmmakers. It's just so inspiring because he cares so deeply mm. about mm. the story. Mm. You know, I remember being in, on set in Belfast, and I remember him saying he was complaining about some financial thing, his car or his house or something. And and then he says, um, you know, the studio offered offered me a job to direct Spider Man, and he goes, I don't do Spider Man. <laughs> in the middle of <laughs> Belfast, it was so great because you know. Again, he's all about telling these great stories. It was really inspiring. That's very James, inspiring, and it's also James, on the. It's also on the on the. You can see it on the screen. You know what I mean? It's yeah, it, yeah. It, because when you watch that movie, you just it's like Apocalypse Now. You know, you you just say they're there. I mean, you know, it, it really. You can you you know they always say cinema is very much mood and atmosphere, and that movie is that in spades. You know, it's it's just so powerful. Yeah, it's amazing how they pulled it off. The producers, the mm -hmm. production managers, assistant directors, the camera people. It was amazing. But, you know, the interesting thing uh, about James is he's very much um, inspired by the filmmakers, you know, like Scorsese mm -hmm. and, and Francis Coppola. So, you know, that's what it's about for him. It's mm -hmm. not about the, the spectacle. It's, it's about, you know, a story, the human condition, the human soul. And... And that's what interests him. And and, and the, the thing about James, he's he's probably one of the you know sort of most uh, more intelligent people I've ever met. He's like mm -hmm. he could be a, a professor, mm -hmm. uh, even mm -hmm. a history professor. I mean, he knew more about the history of that particular time or or any um, you know uh, even with the immigrant you know mm -hmm. back in the nineties. Mm -hmm. He knew every detail. He knew everything. He he knew more than the historians. And in fact, you know, he'd say, no, they didn't have that then. It, that, that didn't happen. This is the way it really was. You know, so he, he was, you, you would learn a lot with him because he was such a, a wealth of information and, and knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And he liked holding court and talking about these things. He's also one yeah. of the most also inclusive people. He would mm -hmm. be out there, you know, just sort of talking with everyone. He treated everyone with respect, whether it was a production assistant or whatever, he was, he would engage everyone, you know, someone mm -hmm. like, like Ron Howard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and talk about, 
uh, just briefly, you know, working with Ari Aster because, you know, I, I just, it, it, to me, he, he's very inspiring, you know, as a writer director and somebody who's been able to sort of get his vision through the system. And, and I'm just curious what it was like to work with him on both Hereditary and Midsommar, which are two of my favorite films. Yeah, well, Ari is a really interesting guy. He's, he's very unassuming. Um, and when we first met with him and sat down and, and went through the film with him, uh, Hereditary, and, and looked at it, I, I was I was really blown away. I was like, this, this guy, you know, this really knows his stuff. He really has, he's, he's amazing. He really has an understanding of everything and, and knows exactly what he wants and knows what he's doing. And um, there had been some work that had already been done by, by another company. And he's like, this isn't working for me. Why, you know, and we were like, me well, because yeah, they approached you wrong. This is what should be. So he's like, can you guys, re, you know, redo this? Um, and we're like, sure. So we ended up, you know, he, he really, he really knew maybe he technically he, he couldn't, you know, exactly pinpoint it, but he has such a good eye. He knows when something's working and when it's mm-hmm. not working. Mm-hmm. So he was really a, a very efficient, great, uh, director to, to work with because, um, you know, and he has such a unique vision. I mm. mean, uh, Midsommar was the, reading the script was one of the most disturbing scripts I ever read. I mean, I, I, I think I didn't sleep for days after that. I was like, I don't know it, when this movie's finished, I don't know if I can even watch it because it's, it just <laughs> blew me out of the water. And I was like, you know, Ari, where did this come from? You know, I was like, yeah. oh my that was God. like uh, Robert Eggers also on the lighthouse. Yeah. Yeah. When you go, wow, this guy, he wants to shoot black and white film. Oh and yeah. We asked him the four by three aspect ratio and you go, wait a minute, what? And I, then you just, again, it's so inspiring to see that in his vision. And, and, and shot 16 millimeter black and white too. I was, was going to say that, but I wasn't I, sure. Yeah. I thought he mixed mediums and that whole, that whole, uh, uh, and I know that they used, I want to say like older cameras that they had to find mm-hmm. uh, now, but talk about light, the lighthouse because from a visual effects standpoint, I would love to know, you know, what is real and what is not because I, I believe that lighthouse is real. Correct. That, that look, that's a location. They, they built a section of it as an uh, exterior and we extended it exterior internally uh so uh but they did you know have a, a foundation someone like boardwalk uh, empire was, okay was partially built okay okay and but it was a real location in like nova scotia or something yeah yeah right? because yes. because when those waves i mean when the waves are going and everything you're was that water augmented or is that is that real weather I, i'm uh, that that's real weather except for you know the rain you know ah, they they ah, 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 ah. Uh, had practical, you know, rain, and and then we enhanced rain. We added additional, you know, CG rain for that. We weren't uh, we weren't up there for the shoot. It was one of those films that didn't have a budget, um, ah, okay. and they they had someone who sort of was local to uh, uh, Canada that uh, you know helped advise them during the shooting. So we that was one of those films where he, you know, they had consulted with someone, so things were done. I see, you know, really well. And, you know, Robert is another guy who's just, you know, one of these, you know, filmmaking geniuses who just knows. And we did a lot of things. I remember doing some things where maybe the camera move was not exactly the way he wanted it. So we would, we would do things within the frame, you know, to give him what he, what he wanted. Wow. To correct the movement, to correct the... Or maybe the yeah. camera bumped a little bit or sure, something sure. that wasn't quite exactly right. It's really elegant things mm-hmm. in that movie. Absolutely. I mean, that movie, it, that movie's, it's sort of so over the top, but yet so restrained. 
you know, and, and I, and it, it almost like, I heard someone say, I think it was Ari Aster said, cause he interviewed Eggers and he said it was like a pinter play, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in this set in, set in this, in this, and I, and I, I, I mean, I love Eggers work as well. And so let's, let's talk about another sort of New York filmmaker, filmmaking team who, who, uh, you know, cause I work with a partner and we're very inspired by the Safdie brothers and, you know, you mm-hmm. guys did uncut gems, which I just, I, you know, I, I know I, I've talked to you about this before, but you know, that opening of the cosmos that is sort of the cosmos into, you know, the colon. I mean, talk about working with the Safdie brothers and working on that film because it's such a great film. And also I think it's another film that really showcases your guys really elegant visual effects. Well, they, they, you know, that's, it's all to their credit. I mean, they, uh, the Safdies, you know, definitely had a vision of what they wanted. And, you know, uh, Josh and Benny had, had done their research. And they really provided us uh, with a lot of, you know, microscopic imagery. Oh, wow. Still photographs that as reference uh, <laughs> to some of the things. But, uh, you know, he, I, I really felt like with this, this sequence, uh, he, was, he was really visionary, um, you know, Josh and, and Benny. Um, and uh, it, it, was, it was pretty amazing. It was very interesting. We were, we were very much like, you know, how are we going to, uh, create this, how are we going to do this? And mm-hmm. it, it went on for, for, it was very, com- one of the more complicated things was handled and it was very involved and work, Josh, you know, and Benny worked very close with us and we had some great, you know, CG artists on our team who were just, you know, unbelievable who, you know, mm-hmm. helped develop and, uh, and, and Josh was able to direct, uh, you know, the okay. CG, you know, it was very much, you know, um, uh, by design. So it was a great collaboration. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, they also, they were an inspiring team, you know, uh, read the script and the script was really good. But when you saw the, the movie come alive, when we actually saw a cut, I was like, wow, this is, this is so much more dynamic that I huh. could have ever imagined. The, the, the performance he got out of Adam Sandler was, was, I thought it was amazing. I had never seen a performance like that from Adam Sander because I, I think, you know, he's always in sort of like comedies and things like that. And, and this, I think really tapped, I think the Saturdays mm-hmm. tapped into a, a part of, uh, of Adam Sandler's talent that I think had never been tapped into before. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, special, I think special film. I think the the last film of that ilk is punch drunk love, but it's a, it's a much different, you know, more controlled, Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, film, and I think what's really interesting listening to the to, to I think Josh Safdie said, you know, f- to him the screenplay feels dead, you know, mm-hmm. and and it to him it's all about you know there are no marks on on the on the stage apparently, which which initially for Darius Kanji, <laughs> or mm-hmm. as or as or as Paul Thomas Anderson calls him, Your Highness, mm-hmm. Kanji was like, what are you talking about? What do you mean right. no marks? And they were like, you'll be fine, Darius, you'll be fine, and we're going to put a long lens on a dolly and in a steady cam and mm-hmm. and. And, and I think it's their, their ability to mix sort of control and chaos, you know, w- also with non-actors, you know, because they have all those great New York personalities who populate the film. I mean, it's just right. such a New York movie uh, uh, in, in the most specific way. And then, and then mixing Bogosian, you know, with, uh, 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 with Sandler and, and everybody else. Uh, and, and was the bullet shot at the end to his forehead, is that practical in any way or is it all digital it, when you go? It's all digital. Oh wow! Digital. Um, wow. Yeah, they they obviously provided some really good plates and had a very, you know, specific vision 
I mean, the way they pulled that film together was was amazing. I mean, I, it just blew me away. Like you said, the, the script read, oh, it's interesting, just like Wolf of Wall Street. But when the director comes in and brings it alive, uh, very much like Scorsese, they, they, they add a whole d- dynamic to it that is just something you never think about or thought of. Or, mm. uh, and so there were so many surprises when, you know, we started to see the cut, uh, you know, that just it blew us away. So it was, it was really, you know, very dynamic experience. I give credit to the producers for keeping that sequence of going inside the jewel. Yeah. Yeah. I, I secretly thought at some point, I just, I thought the producers would pull the plug on it and just say, forget it. You don't need it because it's, you know, it's expensive. It's not two right. seconds. It's like a minute of the CG and all the renderings. And yeah. Yeah. It's very complicated. It's really bookends. And, yeah, and Gunn, we were always, and, and, you know, other people on our team, we were, uh, visual effects supervisor, Aaron uh, Denor, um, we were always very nor- nervous that, you know, we're putting all this work into this for months and studio or producer is going to come in uh, and just say, you know what, get rid of it. It's, it's just too different, too bizarre for people. It ends up in a colonoscopy. What? You know, and uh, I, spoiler alert, but um, it, we were just really nervous that they were just not going to, you know, that there was this unique vision that they were going to, you know, sort of, you know, clean it up, get rid of it. And they didn't, to their credit. They allowed them to really, you know, do their thing, uh, which was amazing. And it also, you know, because that those sequences, the beginning and the end, which sort of framed this movie, you know, the elevate it into the realm of kind of this story about fate and destiny and our place in the cosmos. And, you know, it, it, it makes it more than, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, it, than just this story about a gambler, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think it's like, if you've taken those bookends off, it's just another movie about, you right. know, a, right. a, a gambler. And I mean, it, it, obviously it's, it's, it's unique, but, but yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. Well, that's um, an example of how, you know, the visual effects, fits perfectly into mm. the story. It's not just window dressing. 100%. It really was integral to it. Absolutely. Know? It kind of reminds me a little bit of the Powell and Pressburger, you know, like, uh, 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 you know, what is it? Uh, I think it's uh, Matter of Life and Death, you know, how they how they sort of show the cosmos. If you guys haven't watched that movie in a while, it's so mm. great uh, how they sort of frame humanity as this little speck in, 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 in the... In, right. In the, right. you know, uh, uh, and and I, and I want to talk. I know because I know I know guys, we're getting we're getting to the end. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Harriet because I think it's a really important movie. I think what a lot of people don't know is it's directed by Cassie Lemons, who actually is the wonderful actress who's Clarice Starling's best friend, Jodie Foster's best friend in Silence of the Lambs, mm-hmm. and and it's a really really wonderful film. And I want to just talk briefly about how that project came to be and and what your experience was working on that movie. It was interesting being down on set. We actually shot on a couple of locations that used to be oh boy. Uh, slave plantations that were preserved as like a, a history museum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of spooky at times, shooting at night on, on these plantations. And it was like, you know, some of the crew, of course, have a much different perspective on it, but we, it, we didn't feel comfortable being there. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a strange, a strange place, but it was a really important movie. And uh, the case was great, you know, very low budget. So we had to, again, brainstorm a lot, think about how we're going to do this with the money that they have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the schedule got delayed at some point. They had a long hiatus. So we had, you know, there were a lot of challenges uh, because well, of the budget. And, I and, just, and they couldn't find locations. So, you know, certain things we, you know, uh, either, you know, 
they would compromise or we would, you know, step in and say, okay, well, we can enhance this. We can do this if, if you guys do that. And, you know, so Glenn was there or I was there, you know, uh, supervising, uh, and you know, they, they were very much open. They were, you know, really, uh, it was, it was a, a really interesting, uh, collaboration with, the uh, Cassie. She's, she's, she's just seemed no matter what the, the hurdles and the challenges were, she was always so calm. I just, she was, there was this calmness about her that was sort of like, okay, if she's feeling calm about this, I'm going to feel calm and right. you know, it'll be okay. Right. Yeah. Well, because you know, it's filmmaking is problem solving, and 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 you know, it's it's like the the great line from uh, Bridge of Spies is you know you're not worried. It's like would it help? You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> we got to work with uh, the great John Toll. Oh, really? Yeah. DP. He was one of the great DPs that we've gotten to work with over the years, like yeah. John Toll and Vittorio Storaro, and uh, some of these heroes. You know, when I was younger, these were my heroes, and we got to work with him, and he was great to work with. So John Toll shot Harriet. Yes. yes. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. That is yeah. really awesome. I mean, yeah, it was great to work with. There was one night we were shooting and, and uh, it was the scene where they're crossing the river at night and they were simulating moonlight. And John was not happy with, with how, how the light was and the crane was across the lake and it was, you know, a big, big communication issue to get them to move. And, and someone said, well, John, you know, can we go yet? When, when can we go? And he, he came out of his tent and he goes, when my eyes stop bleeding, <laughs> move it. <laughs> Again, it's one of those, you know, inspiring filmmakers. The guy's done a million movies, but yet he really cares about this so, so deeply about it. It's great to see that. Yeah, because, you know, it's, yeah, it's got to be right. I, that, that's, that's, that's a fantastic story. Uh, well, and, and, and I, I kind of would love to sort of uh, end with Trial of Chicago 7 because it is, it's such an important movie. And it's such a beautifully made movie. And, 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 and I always love a film that if, you know, okay, so it's about something and it's, it's sort of, you know, quote unquote, a political film, but yet this movie is still so entertaining and, and so enthralling. And, and what was it like to work with Aaron Sorkin? Because, you know, he's just, you know, one of my heroes is both a writer and a filmmaker. And I'm just so curious. Um, he's, he's amazing. He's, he's really um, a very interesting guy. Um, he, he's very funny. He's very entertaining. He's very focused. He's a writer. Mm. So his focus was always, you know, of course, on performance and story. And he would pretty much say, okay, I'll leave the logistics of the visual effects to you guys. You know, I, I don't, you know, I, I need, which was the right, right thing to do. I need to focus on this. I just need you guys to tell me mm. we'll be okay. We'll be able to fill out the crowds. I need more, you know, police, uh, riot police. I need more of this. Mm-hmm. You know, I need, you know, so, so it was that, that kind of dynamic where he was, he was very trusting of people, mm-hmm. uh, which was good because it was his second film he directed. And, you know, mo- most newer, uh, not that he's new. I mean, he's been writing forever and he's worked with some amazing directors and, you know, he's an award-winning, uh, amazing writer, one of my mm-hmm. favorites and of all time. And he, you know, he was just very much, he didn't get caught up in that thing. He just sort of plowed forward and knew what he needed to focus on. And he trusted his, his crew and his mm-hmm. team on, on all, all different levels. And, uh, and that's why it worked so well, you know. And, and I think it's also 
I've heard him say this, you know, he said, you know, yes, I'm a writer, et cetera, et cetera, but directing is a different muscle. You know, it's a, it's a visual muscle, et cetera. And he, I find it, I think that that's a real mark of a, of, of somebody who's really great is that they are able to trust you guys and, and really say, do your thing because it also inspires you. Right. Because it's, I'm sure it's a little scary. It's a little terrifying because he says, okay, do your thing. And, and now you're like, oh, I really have to do my thing. You know? Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> you know, what if, if we do our thing and it's not what he yeah. expected, you know, you, You'd be in meetings, production meetings before shooting started. And, um, you know, th there are a lot of people in these meetings and, th you know, everyone is very worried about this and that and, you know, concerns and how are we going to do this? It's going to work. And, and he was always very good about, you know, breaking the ice. He would just, when he saw things getting too tense or people getting too frustrated or, you know, you can't always have the answers to everything in, in pre-production, mm -hmm, you know, you just mm -hmm. have to kind of go with the flow sometimes. And, and he very much knew that. So he was always very good at kind of, breaking the ice, changing the subject, you know, making a joke, telling a story to kind of just, you know, sort of relax everyone and put them at ease. You know, mm -hmm. don't worry about it. We'll, we'll figure it out. It'll be okay. And would you say a majority of the work you were doing on that film was in the sort of the March situations and out the exterior work uh, or, or where, where would you say was the bulk of the visual effects that you guys were doing? Well, you know, what, one of our concerns, and, and I'm sure Glenn will concur, we were like, okay, this is a very small visual effect film. It came in with a very small budget, and this and that. It's all going to take place in a courtroom. Um, so, you know, we, initially we were thinking there wasn't going to be much opportunity for us to do that much, but but that's okay. You know, what, whatever the film needs. But it, it really, uh, you know, ended up with hundreds of, of visual effects, hundreds more than we had ever uh, expected. I, I think anyone expected including the, the financiers but um you know there, there were a lot of period period things that you know just had to be corrected whether it was taking out buildings in chicago mm -hmm. embellishing the crowd which we always not we had to do um mm -hmm, some mm -hmm. set extensions um and, and other things even in the in the courtroom you know uh there were many things we we, we did in, in the courtroom scenes to help facilitate what he wanted to do with performance there, um, you know, he even did a little restructuring and maybe costuming wasn't right. So we had to huh. deal with maybe changing the color of a shirt of, of some of the actors. Um, he, at the time the movie ends, you know, going to the sketch artists and, you know, he wasn't uh, completely satisfied with the artwork. So he, he, you know, had that redone by the artist. Um, and, you know, we, we ended up changing all that. So uh, to, to get, you know, he had a very specific type of image he wanted, and it, it took a while to get it. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, also when you do a period film, there's things come up in post that you don't always see mm -hmm. when you're on set. Like there's a building in the background that wasn't built in 1969, or there's a street sign or a crosswalk. So, you know, there are a few things like that which always seem to come up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or, or even, you know, some of their uh, night scenes they shot during the riots in the same location, but it was supposed to be different locations. So we would, you know, change up the background matte paint, you know, uh, something uh, different. So it felt like you were going to different locations. You know, what, one of the interesting things with that is it was our first time working with the particular editor, Alan Baumgarn, who was amazing. He, he reminded me of, of Ron Howard's editors and he was just, uh, uh, you know, a really um, interesting guy to work with. And he was so supportive and he also, you know, relied uh, very heavily uh, on and, and really took over during post-production in terms of, you know, guiding us and working with us and, and guiding Aaron uh, through the process in terms of, uh, you know, he would come up with ideas for things that, you know, maybe hadn't occurred 
to uh, Aaron in terms of the technology of what we can do. So a lot of things were added in, in that regard. Well, and that's, that's so cool because that's literally like you guys are coming full circle with, you know, mm-hmm. your, what, how you started as editors and then working with mm-hmm. an editor on this movie right. to actually, to actually improve the storytelling. Well, it's, it's a, it's a real, it's an, a major accomplishment and congratulations on, you know, obviously Oscar nominations as well for that, you know, for that film. Uh, it, it's cause it's, a, it's a, it's a really amazing movie. Uh, and I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you guys was, you know, for, to either of you, for someone who wants to do what you do, uh, uh, who wants to, to get into the movie business and, and maybe work in visual effects or editing, what advice would you, do you have for someone today? I would say it's important to learn the entire filmmaking process. I think, I think that helps. Um, instead of just learning, you know, you can learn the technology and be a VFX artist. Mm-hmm. But I think the best VFX artists are the ones who kind of have a broader uh, understanding of the entire process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And understanding, yeah, what, what the filmmaker's going for, that it's not about that, you know, pixel or technology. It's really about, okay, what what is the director really looking for here? What What is his vision? What's the story he's trying to tell and how can we do that? Um, and, and maybe, you know, present some suggestions. So I, I think that that is something that we, we, when we initially got into, we found that a lot of people in visual effects were really very technically oriented, but not mm-hmm. necessarily creative or story oriented. So like Glenn said, having an overview of the filmmaking process and understanding everything, because it all goes together. Mm-hmm. You can't work in anything, you know, very isolated. And, uh, you know, if you, you have a particular area you want to go into or focus on, you just really have to... Uh, even though you can't do it that much anymore, you know, pound the pavement, you really have to be persistent and mm-hmm. ultimately, you know, someone, you'll connect with someone who will see your passion uh, and your talent. Well, thank you both guys. This has been a real treat. Uh, just an, an amazing talk. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, thank, thank you. you. Great to talk to you. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. 
Chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.